0: Hello and welcome to the Boys in the Band podcast, where we bring you exclusive interviews with the musicians
1: who sound soundtrack the noughties indie scene. I'm Richard Gallagher. And I'm Peter Smith. And today we're delighted to be joined by the frontman of a band who were playing Glastonbury before they were even signed. A band championed by the late, great John Peel and a band which rocked. It's Billy Lunn from the Subways.
2: We were at our peak. we just released all or nothing we were all at peak physical condition we were all playing at our very best our fans were absolutely insane like we walked out 50 to seventy thousand people there i lost count of the number of circle pits i was just getting shivers down my back
1: Oh, some great stories in there, uh, Rich, weren't there? It was, it was uh, meeting Liam Gallagher. It was flying out to LA to appear on the OC, wasn't there? To yeah. do his degree at Cambridge University. And um, you know, Subway's fans, look out because he's very excited about their uh, upcoming fifth album, which they're uh, trying to piece together in lockdown. Exactly,
0: yeah. Sounds very exciting, the new stuff. But we also chatted to Billy about the, the Subway story from the very start through to uh, his throat operation, through to that new material
1: that's coming up soon. Yeah, lots of highs, lots of lows, but lots of uh, fantastic gigs and great music along the way. So if you're a Subway's fan, strap in as we take you through their story with band singer, guitarist, songwriter, producer, Billy Lunn. Enjoy.
0: Billy, welcome to the Boys in the Band podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing?
2: My pleasure. I'm great. I'm just here in my studio in isolation. I've got the shutters down so no one can get in. Excellent. Um, I've got it all to myself so I can make all the noises I want. Um, <laughs> and so I'm 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 perfectly fine. How about you guys? How are you coping with the uh, self-isolation?
0: Yeah, yeah, we're, we're getting there, mate. You know, facing all the challenges everybody else is, but uh, yeah, we're, we're lucky to have a few distractions like this.
2: Well, that's yeah. it. I mean, like that's, the, that's kind of like the thing that gets us through is that we know that everyone's going through all this at the same time
0: now um we like to start this podcast like any good gig so that means we have to kick off with a good old sound check so sure. we've got three quick questions for you to get us warmed up um so first of all you mentioned a little bit about the the room that you're in but we're talking yeah. over skype we can't do it in person everyone in lockdown so whereabouts in the world are you
2: i'm in hearts um which is where i both live and uh, i have my studio um and it's pretty boring i'll be honest <laughs> it's not like inner city it's not like rural it's like this kind of um suburban hell in between. Uh I grew up in Winning Garden City, which is very similar to that, but that's what I think kind of like inspired me to form the band and just to try and do something, you know, just to yeah. try and make something of myself. Um but saying that, you know, my family's here, my friends are here, the restaurants are fine, the bars are <laughs> fine, <laughs> there's a nice little canal in the town. Got a direct line into London, so um It's typical home county is like moaning. We've got everything, but we still (laughs) (laughs)
1: moan. Okay, Billy, next up. Second question. Which band are you loving right now?
2: Right. um, I'm loving Salvation Jane at the moment. Um, They are uh, three women. One guy. Uh, It's kind of like this classic rock feel to it. Chess, the lead singer, has got one of the most sublime lead vocals out there at the moment. Um, And Tour on the Drums is spectacular um she's my uh she's Josh's actually the drummer in our band uh she's his favorite drummer um but yeah we we played a few shows with them recently actually the um the warm up show in Hitchin and Hearts uh before our young for eternity tour which unfortunately had to be rescheduled owing oh, to self isolation woes uh they played with us there and they absolutely blew our minds so i'm just listening to them a lot at the moment they're doing some uh they've got their own studio in kent so they're utilizing that as much as they can they're doing like these classic rock covers and that kind of thing so um but yeah yeah that, if, if, if i could pick one it's those guys
0: brilliant brilliant and um obviously you mentioned you saw them live but what about any other gigs can you pick out any other uh good gig you've been to in the past 12 months
2: um well uh i saw idols in uh portland right. arms in cambridge which is like this tiny little venue and now they're playing like ali <laughs> that Uh, But I saw them in this tiny room, half full, uh, and that was just before um, Joy is an Act of a Resistance came out. uh, And it's brilliant. Yeah. One of the best gigs I've been to. Um, I saw Garbage recently. That was really good. Um, Again, that was in Cambridge, but that was at a bigger venue called The Junction. Um, It was a really emotional experience because I've got like a long history with that band. Um, Version 2.0 is the first record I bought Charlotte when we were going out. Um, And Charlotte's now the bassist in our band and fellow songwriter. But also we've become really good friends with Garbage over the years. Um, When I was taking my finals at Cambridge, uh, Shirley came into Cambridge and took me out for a meal, which was amazing. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, it was like, it feels like she's kind of this auntie that I never quite had. (laughs)
1: Um,
2: She's amazing. She'll, She'll rip you apart one minute and then she'll be like, you know, laughing and joking and telling you you're amazing the next. You know I, I sit there in awe of her character um and uh but at the same time she she kind of it's weird when your heroes talk to you as like a um a contemporary a friend right, yeah. you know. um and that's one thing you have to really get used to that's one thing we had to get used to when we uh once we would made young fraternity um and we we're on tour i remember paul weller walking up to me uh, at guildfest and uh, he asked my autograph. I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not giving you an autograph. He said, he's like, it's not for me, it's for my daughter. I love your album, I love your record. But I, um, I said, okay, bring your daughter over, because I'm not signing my autograph for you. I <laughs> can't do it, I can't, can't do it. Um, but yeah, also, um, with Garbage, uh, uh, Butch Vig, uh, the drummer of Garbage, has always been like a huge hero of ours, because he produced um, uh, Nevermind, uh, which is one of our all-time favourite records um and we ended up making an album uh with butch um in los angeles at conway studios um and so since then we've kind of been really locked in with garbage uh so yeah going to see them at that gig was like like all the songs just brought back all the memories of when charlotte and i were going out and then you know when we got to know garbage and it just felt like i was living I was living all those memories again when I watched them play live. And that's kind of like the magic of music really
1: Yeah, Um,
2: is that it just takes you on all those journeys within such a quick space of time.
1: Yeah. Obviously you talk about that connection you got with that band. I'm sure lots of people listening in will have similar connections with the Subway. So,
2: Oh, well, that's what really kind of, um, both like it humbles me. And it also really freaks me out is that, (laughs) you know, we get people sending us messages going, "Oh, we our first dance at our wedding was to with you. Um, or, you know, I, my, my wife walked down the aisle to rock and roll queen i'm just like thank you so much for letting us be part of your lives like that it's just so um it's so crazy
1: well billy let's let's rewind the clock then back to the early 2000s so you formed subways with your brother josh morgan right and yes. um, your then girlfriend charlotte cooper as you said um early days of the band bands i was reading up about it, it sounds a lot like i guess a lot of bands would have gone through you know trying to get into venues trying to play venues uh, sending cds off to various promoters and people in the industry yeah. But then, uh, then at one point, you get a call from Michael Evis yeah. saying, "Hey, do you fancy playing Glastonbury?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, for people who don't know that story, Bill, tell tell us how it came about and uh, that bizarre experience, and what a what a start for the subways, what a kickstart yeah. for the band.
2: It was it was absolutely crazy. And um, looking back, I'm kind of like, "How did we get there?" But at the same time, it's like we were so pushy, <laughs> we were so precocious, like we were. Um, we'd only really just left school. I was working in a hotel collecting the dirty sheets from the hotel rooms and bagging them up, and that's where I'd write the songs. As sort of just, you know, go through the hallways of the hotel, humming in tunes, um, and then I'd go home and sort of write them up. Um, and we just kept writing and writing and writing, um, and eventually, like, uh, my parents got me uh, a four-track cassette recorder, like a Tascam thing. Um, and I'd sort of multi-track on that, and then eventually got like an eight-track digi, and we'd record our demos, bought a uh, cheapy microphone set from the local um, music shop, Uh, I'd record Josh in my parents' council house uh, in in the lounge, and I'd sort of feed the leads through to the recorder in the kitchen, Um, and then I'd record Charlotte, and then me, and then once we'd burn the CDs off, we'd Uh, burn like 30 40 of them sending out send them out to london venues and we did that for a couple of years and and we started picking up this kind this like uh cult kind of following you know people who would come to every single show like every other day (laughs) um and uh i alongside that just to sort of pay for um the journeys into london and because you know you it it was expensive to uh try and get the money together to play these shows because we were kids and we didn't really have like really lucrative jobs or anything like that, um, I'd get bands to come into my parents' council house and I'd record them for like a really small fee, uh, maybe for a couple of cans of beer and a spliff. Uh, at one point, um, by this point, we were kind of filling out 150 capacity venues in yeah, places like uh, the Gate in Kentish Town, uh, the Buffalo Bar in Islington, uh, Dublin Castle in Camden. Um, And uh, I asked one of the bands I was recording in my parents' kitchen, I was like, where are you going to send the CD off to after I've burned it for you? Because I've got some great venues that you should send it to if you want to score some gigs. They're like, oh, that's great. That'd be great. But like, primarily, we're going to send our CD off to Michael Evis because he's doing this competition. If he likes your demo, he's going to put you on at Glastonbury. I was like, fucking hell. Great. (laughs) We'll have some of that. And by that point, we had about eight demos with three songs each on. And we went through all the demos, picked the best three songs, put them on one CD. And then amongst another 40-odd CDs that we were sending out to London Promoters that month anyway, we sent this one CD off to Michael Evis, Um Thought nothing of it. Two weeks later, got a phone call. Hi, it's a representative of Michael Evis, My name's Wes, um, and we really like your demo. We'd like you to come up to Pilton um, to play Michael's favorite working men's club uh with about six other bands if he likes you he'll put you on at glastonbury i was like oh my god brilliant (laughs) so yeah we we got in the you know our our little um uh community center they'd rent out a room for three pound fifty an hour so we you know put some money down and just for a whole week we were rehearsing 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 um went up to pilton Played three songs. Michael Levis ran up to the stage and was like, You got it. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, wow, uh, that June, we were playing uh, in front of 10,000 people on the other stage um, on the Saturday at Glastonbury in 2004. Uh, after that, we were like, That's it. That's it. We've got to quit our jobs. We've got to do this. We've got
0: yeah, to do definitely.
3: this
2: properly. Yeah. So we yeah, all quit man. our jobs. Uh, we bought a midi Bedford van and we booked our first tour around the UK in 2004. 40 dates, no breaks all gig 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 by the end of the tour we were signed to warner warner records oh, wow. and that's it Brilliant. and then a couple of months later we're in the studio with ian Brody making our first album so um you can definitely hear it in the album you can hear <laughs> that we're still sort of riding on uh pure adrenaline and, and raw power yeah <laughs> definitely
0: so what about the your your memories of that particular gig when you actually got to glass and you played the other stage what, what do you remember of that day
2: um, right. I remember everything around the gig
0: itself.
3: <laughs>
2: um, I remember camping. I had my parents there. I had a, a couple of cousins and aunties and uncles. We've got a big family. So we took them all along and we had a big weekend of it. Um, and um, yeah, so I can remember getting sunburned on the Friday. <laughs> Cursed in myself that I was going to be like, you know, have these bright red cheeks on the Saturday when we played. Luckily, my hair was like right over my face. My big floppy hair. Um, which you can see in the photos. Um, I remember walking up to the stage. I remember doing sound check. I remember walking off the stage, getting ready to be announced to go back on stage. Um, and then it, I remember walking towards my microphone uh, stand, and that's it. I can't remember anything else. <laughs> I remember walking off, and um, the band's manager, who uh, he picked us up at um, the Buffalo Bar, which I've, I've already mentioned. Um, this tiny little bar in Islington. Uh, which is closed down now it's turned into this like boutique place but it's it used to be underneath a pub called the famous cock or what I like to call the Robbie Williams um, <laughs> and uh, it, yeah we even then like you know we were two or three gigs into playing in 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 London and he ran up to the stage and was like I have to be your manager and he was like he's ever since then he's been our manager but i remember walking off stage after that Glastonbury gig and him just hugging me and then just shaking, just shaking for the rest of the weekend. <laughs> it's like I can't believe that's happened.
1: Oh, I might so, you know. so that was that was two thousand and four, right, Billy?
2: Yeah, that, that was yeah. yeah.
1: Because you followed that up with Reading and Leeds Festival later that summer, didn't you?
2: Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. We were, I mean, Reading and Leeds is. I always find Reading and Leeds more frightening than Glastonbury. Glastonbury always feels like I don't know, a bit more, um, bit more, uh bit more relaxed a bit more community based a bit more chill just generally kind of like more hippified yeah um, and it makes it makes for a much more chilled experience even even when we were playing on the pyramid stage um which is you know one of the biggest stages i've ever played on it was kind of like it's okay it's class everyone's <laughs> everyone's got us um and we've got them whereas running in leeds because charlotte and i had been to reading uh in 2002 it was our first ever festival we were still like really young um, and it was our first opp- opportunity to really just kind of like indulge in the experience of like being at a festival, being surrounded by fellow music lovers um, and seeing our favourite bands, you know, 30 feet in front of our eyes. Um, it 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 had something more to it. It felt like we were always, always trying to kind of prove ourselves. Um, and it became the festival that we went back to five years in a row because, you know, we kind of got hooked on it. <laughs> we kind yeah. of got hooked on playing it because there is something about it you know um it's got that kind of like it's um it's worked its way into our brains uh, and every time we're there we remember the life changing experiences we had when we'd watched the bands there like you know um when i watched muse and uh, pulp and foo fighters and babondies um and interpol and white stripes so yeah
1: well, I think I actually saw you at that at that festival. I can I can pretty Are much really? remember it. Yeah, so you were playing the Carlin tent, right? And that's I right. That was, it was like it was just off to the side of the main area, wasn't it? As you went yeah, in on, on yeah. the left. And actually, I, I, I um, just before we spoke to you, today, I had the old, I pulled up the old poster, just sort of reminding myself of all the bands. Because there were a lot of good bands playing that stage, or perhaps yeah. bands that went on to become really good bands—the Cribs, Kasabian, Kaiser Chiefs, yeah. the Secret Machines—I remember one of they. Like, we talked about drummers earlier. The Secret Machines <laughs> were smashing those drums that, that afternoon. Oh my
2: god! Yeah.
1: Um, the others, the Shins, like some really good bands. And you mentioned it earlier, sort of the subway suddenly being propelled into this sort of rock and roll world. So, you know, how did you sort of find that suddenly being surrounded by these bands who? yeah we're absolutely killing it themselves
2: yeah uh i i i'll be honest i was <laughs> i was really like anxiety ridden um, <laughs> the whole time because um i was uh, you know i was still so young my friends when we got signed um and and we were touring young fraternity my friends were in their first year at uh university um or second year um and I would look at them and I'd think like our pressures are so different. Our experiences mm. are so different. And a lot of my friends as well. My like my two best mates, who are brothers, uh, live in Harlow in Essex. Um, they they started their jobs in in a factory in Harlow, and you know we we talk a lot, and I'd be like, oh, how's how's work going? How's everything going? And they'd be like, hey, it's fine, you know. What are you up to? I'm like, this oh, <laughs> interview on telly later, and and then I got like, and I'd just be so stressed the whole time. And it's also because like yeah, as you were saying, like all those bands on the same stage they were my heroes I was still so young and they were all I was playing with my heroes and it it took a really long time to get used to um and I think also I was still I was still learning what kind of like songwriter and what kind of artist I wanted to be I was still so unsure of myself um and luckily I was just on the cusp of sort of like turning into my early 20s um and after a while after you you know a couple of months of touring young fraternity and and then eventually you know going to america going to australia going to japan going you know onto the continent i was like ah i'm feeling a bit more okay about this i'm feeling a bit more um comfortable in myself and who i am and what i'm doing and because i was i felt so guilty like those those early those early days i was i was ridden with like this this imposter syndrome like i don't deserve to be here and um i felt guilty because you know like my friends were working their jobs and i was i was kind of i was getting to do what i'd always wanted to do since i was a kid since i first saw angus young uh hammering on a solo as he sort of rose through the stage uh on a tr- in a trap door um, and <laughs> at my first ever gig at um, acdc in Wembley stadium um so eventually i was like no I've just got to enjoy this you know I've got to I've got to relish it a little bit and that that kind of came about after taking heed from Noel Gallagher and Liam Gallagher you know um when we when we played with them um you know Liam walked up to me uh, after we'd supported them at Hammersmith Apollo um and I was really nervous about that gig because the reason I picked up a guitar in the first place was because I heard supersonic by Oasis oh, wow. uh, and I heard the lyrics. I need to be myself. I can't be no one else. And I was like, if that, <laughs> if that's what music can do, I need to be a part of this. So, um, you know, when we supported them, Liam, Liam came out of the venue because Charlotte and I were chilling out outside and we were talking to Ian Brody because, uh, he's good friends with, uh, Ringo Starr and Ringo's son, Zach was, was playing drums with Oasis. So there was that big, kind of liverpool manchester connection and we just recorded our album with ian Brody. so we're chatting and uh liam sort of struts out and i'm like oh my god (laughs) it's liam gallagher he walks over and i'm like oh my god he's walking over to me and he shakes my hand. he's like thanks so much for playing with us that oh yeah song it's my favorite song at the moment oh wow it's just like (laughs) and after that after that i was like no i think you know i i kind of uh, this is okay i should be doing this I'm, I'm right to be doing
0: this yeah great stuff so let's just delve into a little bit more about the that debut album then because you've mentioned already it was produced by him of the lightning seeds and a couple of those songs were just everywhere at that time you know i remember a friend of mine introducing me to rock and roll queen uh, and cool. oh yeah and oh yeah they were just everywhere at that time um but tell us a bit about how going from doing all your demos in, in, in your mum and dad's house to then going into the studio and, and laying down all those you know, really strong songs from that debut uh, in, in a proper place? Uh,
2: I, I found it uh, really overwhelming. I, I found it, uh, again, really stressful because like when I was recording the demos, I'd have the, the, the eight-track mixer in front of me and I had control of everything. And then all of a sudden we're in this big studio, you know, huge SSL desk, You know, that's worth hundreds of thousands of pounds, ridiculous microphones, Um, you know, this beautiful uh, uh, 24 track tape machine, uh, pro tools and all this sort of stuff. And I was just like, oh, God, I've got no control over any of this. Um, And so I would sort of hover by the mixing desk and I think I'd I'd get on Ian's nerves a little bit. You know, (laughs) he kind of go, you know, "You're, you're fine. It's okay. I've got this. It's cool just enjoy playing enjoy you know um, tracking um, and have fun Um, and after a while I did um, uh, but I kind of like looking back I I gave Charlotte and Josh a really hard time because I was a bit of a control freak you know I I wrote all the songs and I kind of would tell them what to do and Josh and I being brothers would argue all the time Um, I'm the elder brother and I'm the songwriter so I'd like I constantly invoke that um, and he being the younger brother and way more mischievous than I ever was would always be up for stirring it um, and like prodding and pressing my buttons Um so there, there were arguments um, and you know there were tears um, but there was a lot of laughter as well there was a lot of pride going on because you know those demos when you listen back it's like yeah you know you're in control but you kind of if you want to take that step up if you want to work with ian Brody, if you want to release an album with Warner's, if you want to go on tour it has to be proper yeah. you know it has to be well done so you just got to let the guys who know what they're doing do what they do um and you know after not very long ian proved himself because you know we would do a take and we would go up into the into the control room and he'd play it back and it would just be like i remember hearing the the title track young fraternity back for the first time and i thought oh my god oh my god we're making rock and roll
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, this is
2: rock and roll um we tracked oh yeah rock and roll queen first And then we quickly went to London and recorded the video for Oh Yeah and then went back up to Liverpool. By the time we were back in Liverpool and and tracking the rest of the album, Oh Yeah was on the TV screen. (laughs) So now now and then we come downstairs for like a cup of coffee or, you know, a bit of lunch and we'd see us playing on the telly. It's just like, what's happening?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It just (laughs) happened so quickly, didn't it?
2: Yeah. You know, and I, I, I try and I try and make it as like, comfortable as I probably could. But, you know, it was it was really amazing because it was one of the first times that we'd really got out of Welling Garden City.
1: And it, and it just takes off, doesn't it, Bill? Because then you're supporting bands like Foo Fighters. You're appearing on The O.C. You're out in... Uh... Yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah. We, we were uh, on David Letterman, Conan O'Brien. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we were asked to play The O.C. Uh, that's when... <laughs> I mean, before we'd even... Before we'd even played over in France or Germany, we were over in Los Angeles on a television show. And it was because like uh, the producer of the show heard Rock and Roll Queen and Oh Yeah. uh, And was like, wow, we've got to get this band on. And we were invited on and we thought, what are they they asking us? They've just had like The Killers, Death Cab, The Cutie on. So we were, you know, we we, we hopped on the plane and and we found ourselves in the studio mingling with Hollywood stars. (laughs) Rachel Bilson, (laughs) who's like, was you know i had a massive crush on her she was just chilling out with us for the whole day she was so sweet um and she really liked us because she was like how oh, the other bands when they came on they'd just be in their dressing room and then they came on to do their part and then they went away again we were like fuck that we've never seen a television show being filmed before we've got we've got to live this um so we we spent the whole day on set and it was uh, it was it was crazy um and I look back at pictures and I'm sort of stood next to Misha Barton She's looking all glamorous. And I'm just like with this moppy haircut and this secondhand T-shirt I picked up from Cancer Research in Welling Garden City. Um, it's uh, yeah, it was um, it was pretty special. And when we were at LAX about to fly back, having just shot it, I turned to my manager, I was like, I think we've just done something really special, haven't we? He's like, yeah, I think we have. Yeah, and because of, the, because of the OC, we we spent an entire year touring America before we recorded All or Nothing. You know, we were doing our own headline shows right across America. Um, like I said, appearing on Cohen Conan O'Brien and David Letterman, and then um, on tour with uh, Angels and Airwaves, um, uh, Taking Back Sunday, Head Automatica, uh you know we were we were having um you know people from gang of four and uh my chemical romance uh and muse come to our shows it was just uh yeah it's crazy
0: yeah crazy time really riding really riding a wave at that time weren't you um yeah yeah
2: and then you mentioned did...
0: you you came around to then record all or nothing and that was done in la so again quite a big change you know from from your, your demos to the debut album and then this one out in la and you also required a pretty serious operation around that time didn't you so could you tell us yeah. a bit about that and then how that led into your la recording experience
2: yeah totally well we we toured uh, young fraternity long and hard and there was a lot of drinking a lot of smoking uh, and a lot of partying um, and it kind of took its toll a little bit because you know if you spend night after night screaming in smoky venues and down in pints and doing all sorts it's going to affect your voice um and uh, that it came to a point in the latter part of 2006 I just couldn't get my voice back and we had to start cancelling shows and I was like this is I, I hate cancelling shows I don't we we, we 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 had a show I mean the biggest show we had to cancel was Brixton we were we were set to play Brixton Academy and we had to cancel it because I had a throat problem but even before that um, the, the one that led to the Brixton show being cancelled was the Bristol show a couple of days before um we're on stage in soundcheck, and i I couldn't get a peep out. there was nothing and I was like this sh- this show is not happening. I'm so sorry i that we, we can play the music, but I'm not going to be singing and uh, by the time we packed up, got back on the tour bus uh, and started rolling away, I could see the light the 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 kids all you know still still lined up outside the venue, and I started crying. I was like, they have no idea. Um, that the gig's not happening and my heart broke and I was like I'm never never cancelling a gig again um, and that's until self-isolation <laughs> obviously um, <laughs> um, and, and I was like we're getting this fixed so um, we, we saw a, a host of voice doctors and we got so many con- contradictory um, opinions and we were like okay we just got to go to the record label um, get a couple of grand and find the most expensive voice doctor in the world and we did over in in new york we uh, manager and i flew over to new york um in november late november it was snowing and all that i remember it. it was it was I, w- I was it was really strange because like i was i was really happy to be back in new york but at the same time i was like i might never sing again <laughs> <laughs> um so here we go um i had a load of tests done and they said i i didn't have nodules i had polyps Nodules you can get rid of, but polyps you can only get rid of through surgery. So it was like, right, we're just going to have to book in for throat surgery. So in 2007, um, I had uh, throat surgery to remove uh, two large polyps off my vocal cords. And the um, post-op routine was going to be I I was not allowed to speak for a whole month and I was not allowed to sing for two months, uh, possibly three, depending on how it went. And luckily, after two months, my voice was, uh, my my vocal cords were, were back to prime. Um, but I w- during those two months, I was living right on the edge of breakdown because, um, as you can probably tell, I'm i I'm a talker. <laughs> I love to communicate, right? I love to I love to speak. I love to be understood. I love to understand them people, and that's what why I love music. Like I I love that that liminal space between saying something and people interpreting it and running with it and making it them their own. Um, and there was this whole period when I was playing guitar and I could not, I could not like articulate myself, but I ended up writing all or nothing, um, which is our second album. And that came on a wave of, you know, as I said, like touring America a good couple of times over. Um, and whilst we we're over in America doing all that stuff, um, I got to listen to the music that was being on, played on radio there, and there was, there was one song, I can't remember who it was by, but we were in a cab in Los Angeles going across town for doing one set of interviews to another. And this song came on the radio, and I, I turned to Charlotte, and I was like, how does this sound so huge? What is it about this music that sounds so huge? Which I think, like, definitely maybe be achieved. Um, and that no other record since then from the UK has managed to achieve. I was like, how how was that done? So I kind of like I started talking to producers whilst we were over in America and you know we'd we'd hooked up with garbage uh a couple of times. Um and I I I said to our manager, I think I'm gonna talk to the record label um because I wanna spend a fuck ton of money on this next (laughs) album, right? Um and the guy the guy who signed us, who also signed Muse and garbage and ash, um, and the darkness. But they're on Atlantic rather than Warner's. And the guy who signed all of those guys and us um, was now the managing director of Warner's. So I went direct to him and I was like, "I want this amount of money for this album because I want to record with Butch Vig in a studio in Los Angeles, and I want it rich by uh, mixed by Rich Costi. Now, Rich Costi he'd. Um, Mm -hmm. He produced and mixed one of my all time favorite records, which is Fringes by a Danish band called Mew. But also he um, he recorded and mixed um, Absolution by Muse. And I was like, the closest we're going to get to that experience I had in that taxi uh, in Los Angeles is if we go, if we do it this way. If we record with Butch Vig, we're in Los Angeles and then it's mixed by Rich Costey in in, uh, New York. And he said, okay cool we got got signed off on it and uh that was it like you know i I was getting my voice back i was um i was uh allowed to speak and sing again and all these all these songs that i'd kind of like written whilst we were over in america um i could finally put lyrics and and melodies to them and um yeah the, the the sense of being un, I, unable to express myself really came out in pretty much every single song on that album it's kind of like it's that huge gap the abyss between like being able to speak uh, and and being understood or misunderstood um and like the fracturing of communication but also like the fracturing of a relationship because charlotte and i um i think probably i to mean, so the tension and the stress that we were both going through whilst i was um, potentially going to lose my voice forever. Because if I hadn't have funn- followed the post-op routine of uh, a month of no speaking and two months of no singing, I would have lost my voice forever. Like I would have ended up sounding like Miles Davis or something. So there was, there was always that potential that I could never sing again. Um, so by the time we came to record in Los Angeles, Charlotte and I had broken up. Um, but at the same time, we were in Los Angeles, you know, we were, re- we were recording with Butch Vig and we were going to have it mixed by Rich Costey. And it was kind of like this blank check, and we went all out, like everything that I wanted artistically to happen. Which before I'd been either too shy, too tentative, um, or we couldn't cost it. I was like, I don't give a shit. We're doing it. (laughs) So if I wanted a cellist on a on a part, then we got a cellist in, um, and we did. (laughs) If I wanted to play a part on banjo, which I did, I did, you know, because I was like, I wrote I wrote this song in Arizona. And it's having a banjo.
3: <laughs>
2: so um, yeah, the the sense of like being at the precipice is always at the forefront on that album, and it kind of comes through in like it's just its raw sonic power as well. I think like Butch Vig and Rich Costey did an absolutely genius um, uh, thing on that album, and I'm probably most proud of that album apart from the one that we're making now in, <laughs> in, in, in my studio here, uh, which is always a way, but. Um, you know, I, I really think we're kind of reaching reaching um, all or nothing levels of like sonics and songwriting again. So awesome.
1: Yeah. awesome. Well, we'll talk about that one in a bit, Bill, but just two points. So I want to make there. Well, interesting that you talk about that, that sound, because I was listening to um, listening to the first album, and the second album, Back to Back this morning. Right. And I think when that Girls and Boys kicks in, you're like, well, hang on. Something, like obviously doing the research knowing that you guys had gone out to LA to do this you were like yes this this album sounds Ameri- like Americanized yeah. <laughs> you know it's, it's yeah. juiced up it's pumped up you now whether you think it's better than the first album or not is sort of a, another matter but the the sound is bang it's it's very yeah. American isn't it and uh, yeah. yeah it's interesting to hear that, hear that that was your thought process and obviously Butch must have had a big influence on, on that
3: yeah but then, definitely
1: but then also we talk about you know, the subway, there was a lot of focus on your relationship with Charlotte, wasn't it? Not the first band where there's been a couple in the band. And um, I just found it interesting that, you know, obviously it must have been a difficult time for you guys splitting up. But that, was, that feels like a pivotal moment for the band in terms of, you know, you know if she'd said, Look, I don't want to be around this band anymore. Or if you'd said, you know, we can't work together. Yeah. But although your relationship changed, the passion for the band appeared to remain for both of you just as strong
2: yeah and the the binding force there was both like um our mutual respect for each other both as people and as musicians but also like this deep passionate uh love for music um and this band and 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 kind of just wanting to continue this journey and stay on this you know this this kind of like adventurous path which we'd inadvertently <laughs> stepped onto um But yeah, uh, I think also like All or Nothing became kind of like a a means to therapy when we were recording the album. One of the reasons why it sounds so in your face is because we're screaming into that microphone. (laughs) like We're hammering those strings. Um, And I, I think Butch facilitated that in the best way he possibly could. He didn't quite know of the situation that we were in, but he could definitely sense the tension. Um, he could always read the tension between me and Josh. I mean, he had like this this unspoken electric connection with Josh because they're both drummers, but also like they're really similar people. Um, and so I think with me, I mean, Butch always says that when he first met me, he was just like, oh, Billy's just a cocky shit. you know. <laughs> but that's like, I kind of feel like I, I had to be that way uh, as a coping mechanism to be like I, I've, I've got to be proud of these songs I've got to believe in these songs I've got to believe in this band and um and yeah in those early days I think with with all that sort of youthful naivety factored in it it definitely came across as uh, um, cocky um, and I can totally empathize with Butch for saying that but yeah the 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 thing that really got us through that really difficult time and the thing that's always got me and josh through when we face um real difficult times um naturally as brothers in like a high stress situation um it's much easier to sort of react rather than sit back and, and consider the situation um, and when we've been cruel to each other the thing that's c- kind of kept us going and, and and kept us making music together is just that we love it so much we love picking up our instruments and sitting down and like tuning into um I don't know something greater than ourselves, I
0: suppose. And so, just to touch back on on Charlotte as well, because obviously this this podcast is called Boys in the Band, which leads on, you know, that old famous phrase. But um, but there were important, influential female artists in in amongst this male-dominated scene at the time. You know, we had people Very like nice. Beth Ditto being uh, being quite instrumental, and then people like Kate Nash and Laura Marlin came about. But yeah. you know, was it tough for Charlotte at times, like in that sort of male-dominated environment?
2: really tough especially like in the early noughties like um 2003 when we were playing in London then four five six when we were sort of touring the world and it was still very male dominated and um, and Charlotte would often be mistaken as sort of a hanger-on or a fan um and it's like no <laughs> she's a crucial part of this band like um but also like the way the, the way people in other bands would talk to her or treat her um would really get our backs up josh and i um became staunch feminists because of the way that we saw charlotte being treated um not least because you know we think it's the right thing to do to seek equality but um you know we we saw firsthand the kind of the the outright but also like the insidious unspoken or like indirect sexism that goes on in the industry i mean when we were at warders um, just before we left, and one of the reasons we did leave, was because they had a personnel shift. I mean, all the people that were there when we signed were almost all gone um, by about 2010. Uh, and the new head of A&R uh, turned around and said to me uh, in a meeting, um, which... You know, I, I went in and I presented some demos and he said to me, Charlotte shouldn't be on the stage. She should be in the crowd. And I sort of walked out and I thought, this is kind of what she's had to contend with on like a daily basis in this industry. Direct and indirect It's like, you know, people at the very top don't think that rock and roll is a space for women. Um, and uh, Charlotte, um, to her credit and to her courage and bravery as a testament to that. And persevered in spite of it and um you know much like a heroes like shirley manson actively twisted the knife a little bit you know um not just reminding people that women can do it but they should be doing it and mm. that you know um they do it a lot better than most guys <laughs> yeah. um you know there were there, there would some we would sometimes be playing um on stages with for the entire festival all dudes every single band and charlotte would be the only woman on that stage for the entire weekend and you know they'd all be standing there in leather jackets and sunglasses and it's not even bright out (laughs) um all wearing black all lapped in the cool dude smoking a cigarette doing a solo and she'd knock them dead she'd embarrass them because she would be all over that stage she'd be she'd be doing like rage against the machine style riffage and doing spins and jumping off shit. Like, so um, yeah, she's, um, she's, she's amazing. Um, And um, she's a a huge part of this band. And it's always struck me, you know, when we, when Josh and I were jamming um, in the early days at school, it never, it never occurred to us as like an anomaly or an oddity to, you know, to ask Charlotte to be part of the band because um, we were going out, and we were rehearsing at home, Josh and I, one day, and Charlotte was sat there reading a book. I was like, do you want to actually join in? I mean, you <laughs> must be so bored over there. She was like, I don't know what to play. I said, here's the bass guitar. Here's EADG, right? You can work <laughs> the rest out, because, she, she, you know, she could play piano. And she did. She was like, R-, you know, anytime I try to go, try this, you would be like, no, nope, I can do this. I've got it. I know what I'm doing. Um, but like you were saying, there, around the, uh, 2004, 2005, 2006, Beth, Ditto, Kate Nash, um, and even you know with this kind of like uh, with with Paramore um, and uh, you know bands that we've always loved like Sleighing Kinney and Hole um, and you know as previously mentioned, Garbage um, and some of my favourite uh, bands which are still going like Blondie um, you know that th- they've they've always been around but I think what's happening also is like the culture of the music appreciator changing in that they're there there are more bands featuring women now um owing to sort of the emergence in in the late noughties of um of uh, women in bands and women in rock music um but at the same time it's like the audiences are looking for more women in bands you know it's not it, it's no longer uh, such a normal thing to see just for guys in the band it's 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 which is why I love bands like Salvation Jane, which are like you know three women and one guy, kind of turning the um, the expected ratio on its head, or um, all female bands like um, Dream Nails and Dream Wife. Um, and yeah, it's a uh, it's it's a great time to be in rock and roll at the moment.
1: Cause you host the uh, Riot Diet show, don't you, with your wife? I Rowan do. Alice, yeah,
2: yeah, um, she's which amazing. is all about
1: championing that female rock stars, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I've, I've got to say, like a, a big shout out to Roe, um, who, yeah, she started uh, Right Diet on Boogaloo Radio, which um, and she plays um, two hours of new releases from women in music. Um, and each act, every act she plays, they have to feature at least one woman trans or non-binary member. And it sort of puts pay to this idea that, you know, there aren't enough women in bands out there by, you know, she can find... Two hours of new releases every single week and being a co-host on that show is just it's totally ch- it's changed like the way i look at so much in this life but it's also like really influenced this new album i like to untold levels i i cannot give enough thanks to that show um and its importance in my life but uh yeah yeah cool. things are changing for the better definitely
0: well uh, okay In, in part two of this podcast we'll chat to billy about the subways third and fourth albums his degree from Cambridge university and what's coming up next for the band hey
2: i'm billy from the subways and you're listening to the boys in the band podcast
0: you're listening to the boys in the band podcast for more naughty nostalgia check out our twitter facebook and instagram pages and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this Hello and welcome back to the Boys in the Band podcast, where we're joined by Billy Lund from the Subways. Billy, we're now up to the third album, Money and Celebrity, which was produced by Stephen Street, who of course worked with the likes of The Smiths and Blur, among many others. Uh, But this is now six years on from when you were recording your debut. So how did you feel the band had evolved over that six years or so?
2: Um, Well, we'd kind of, um, after touring All or Nothing um, and going around the world a good couple of times, we were a little bit spent because we we we'd been touring consistently for about six years um with almost no breaks i'd not had a holiday at all and um, and we were expected to go straight into writing uh, a new album and i i had a total block but i i just i forgot how to write a song completely <laughs> i remember sitting um sitting on my sofa uh in in my flat um with my wife who was my then fiance uh with my guitar on my lap was sitting watching telly and I just I I felt like the guitar was alien to me like it didn't it you know it didn't belong on my body anymore um and I I I went through a good couple of months of a really difficult time um and my way around that was just to go out was just to go out with my mates and get hammered um and um this one night, we went to an '80s bar uh, in the town where I still live, uh, called Billy Jeans, um, and they they've closed down now—but they were the uh, the arbiters of uh, um, all the all the '80s greats. I mean, they would bring us. They, it was uh, sublime, from Depeche Mode to Kylie <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, Michael Jackson. Um, but yeah, we, my my mate one of my best mates who was working in this factory uh, in Essex he lost his job and so we took him out to Billy Jeans um and I was a little bit depressed myself because I, I couldn't I couldn't do what I was like what I defined myself as like a songwriter I couldn't write songs I was I was no longer that person that I thought I was um so I was thinking the apple sours and, <laughs> and and the tequilas uh sambucas and um i was because my mate had lost his job and um, i was paying uh for his drinks and he kind of started to feel like a bit of a charity case so he said he was going to go he was going to go home uh and i thought well i'm i'm not going to stay here by myself i'm going to go <laughs> with him um, and i said let's just go back and we'll play some fifa or something um and we're getting our coats in the cloakroom uh And before he was looking really down because he felt like a charity case. He he was feeling a little bit useless, and so was I. But he had this big smile on his face. And I think it's like because he knew that we had each other. We had each other's backs. We were going to be there for each other. And he kind of looked at me and went, Do you know what? We don't need money to have a good time, Bill, do we? I was like, Mate, I've got a song to write. (laughs) And that's it. I, I ran home and I wrote, We don't need money to have a good time. And then the album started spilling out of me, like every like songs were just coming all the time. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, we we'd left Warners after that awful debacle. Um, and we'd um, we'd hooked up with um, uh, Cookin' Vinyl, who are a great record label uh, based in Camden. Um, and they they had Marilyn Manson and um, The Prodigy. So it was a really good roster. And they were just like, look, you make the record that you want to make and we'll put it out, whatever. So I'm like, yes, OK. <laughs> but I, at that time, I was, because um, I was spending a lot of time with my with my best mates going out drinking. Um, and, you know, they're, they're huge Oasis fans um, and, and huge Ocean Scene Colour fans. Uh, Ocean Colour Scene fans, sorry. And, um, and Paul Weller fans. So we'd be listening to a lot of jam um and a lot of that kind of music and it like with all or nothing when i was over in america by osmosis like i i really wanted to write a Britpop pop record <laughs> um you know because we'd written our garage rock record we've written our americana record and i was like i'm gonna i'm gonna do my little homage to to Britpop. pop um, and so we ended up writing money and celebrity after the Very punky. We don't need money to have a good time. Mm -hmm. Um, I wrote like a a kind of like My Sharona-esque riff with um, It's a Party. Um, And then one day, like, you know, during the writing of the album, uh, Amy Winehouse died. I was sitting watching BBC News 24, and you had all over the news and people from publications going, no one saw it coming. I mean, why didn't didn't someone do something? It's like... (laughs) The media at that point had been feeding off of the Amy Winehouse um, dollar for a really long time. Everyone can see this coming. Um, And I I wrote a song about how, like, the the music industry, uh, and this is kind of like a hangover from the Pete Doherty days as well. I mean, sometimes you'd be reading uh, a copy of the NME and the first 18 pages would be Pete Doherty. You'd be like, this is just this is a Pete Doherty fanzine, it's not, it's not, it's not about new music whatsoever, it'd be week after week after week, and they'd sort of feed this whole, like, he's gonna go, he's gonna die, he's like this mythological rock and roll icon that's, you know, gonna leave us like Jim Morrison did, or Kurt Cobain, and they feed off it, because obviously it sells papers, and I thought, I'm just gonna sit down and write that kind of, like, song, and I've been listening to a lot of pulp as well, so I just kind of, like, wanted to I wanted to speak in 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 a narrative, um, social voice, um, so that kind of came out through that record. At that point, also we we started shirking off the the stress and the tension that really used to get to us, um, and we were just learning to just enjoy the fact that we were in a band, you know, enjoy the fact that we got to be in a recording studio making records. Um, And, you know, we were kind of like accruing this nice kind of um, history of working with absolutely insanely good producers on our records. Um, So, yeah, uh, Money and Celebrity was a funny one. It was like it was the first time we ever got uh, listed on Radio One, A-list on Radio One. um, And it probably got the worst reviews of all our albums. Um, And yet it's still probably one of my favorites to listen to just because it is because there's like no pretension to it. There's no trying too hard. We were just enjoying um, being in the band, just enjoying being in the same room, just enjoying the fact that we were still able to make music Um, because at that time in sort of, 2010 2011 a lot of the bands that we'd come up with were either breaking up or sinking under Mm. getting dropped by their record labels and we we kind of like had this existential wow when's our turn (laughs) kind of thing (laughs) and it never quite came um and i think just kind of trucking on through money and celebrity both through the recording process and through the touring and just working really hard, um, proved to us that, like, maybe we're going to do this forever. (laughs) Maybe this is is the thing that we're going to do until the day we die and we're okay with that.
0: Perfect, yeah. And then you, you, you did just that, you cracked on, and a couple of years later we got the the fourth album, which unusually was a self-titled album. Not uh, Quite yeah. often bands have that as their debut, self-titled, your fourth. So what was I thinking about that? Did you feel the band had reached a new stage of development, or tell us about it?
2: Yeah, well, after working with Ian Brody, uh, Bushvig, and Stephen Street, I was very much of the mind that, regardless of the stress it was going to cause me or how much it cost, I was going to produce the next album. Um because firstly, like I've run out of ideas of who I'd like to record us. I'd also started writing some pretty crazy songs that I knew for a fact certain producers would probably say no to. Um, and they'd ask me where the singles were and that kind of thing. And I was like, Do you know what, I've made three albums and at least three quarters of all of those albums could have been released as singles. Um, and I want to make a record of just songs where it's like, where's the single on this, you know? And it's kind of like a punk record. Um, and so it, it 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 demanded that we take charge and be, we be the ones that say yes or no to something. Um, and also, you know, we were still with Cooking Vinyl, and so we thought, you know, they're just going to release the record, whatever, you know? Obviously, they're going to turn it down if it is truly horrible, but, you know, they're not going to bemoan the fact that it's not got, like, a hit single on it. So, we um, we rented a space, which is which then became the studio I'm in now, which I built um, over the course of taking my degree, and um, uh, and we just like chucked ourselves in. Um, we I, I bought like a the cheapest piece of Pro Tools hardware I could afford. Um, I bought a big batch of sort of different kinds of microphones, and I had no recording knowledge whatsoever. So as I went through, I was learning bit by bit, and it would take a time and we went through a kind of demoing process, but by and large we just dove straight in. Um and Josh and Charlotte maintain to this day that the fourth album is their favourite ever record. Oh,
3: <laughs> and cool. I look
2: back on it and I'm like, It's punk <laughs> and it's fine. Um, it is what it is. Um and it was self titled simply because it was like it felt like a uh a, 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 i started from scratch again you know Um, i started from the ground up again um and at that time as well um my alcoholism was was getting so bad um but i think making making the album even though i was sinking pints every other take (laughs) um i you know making the album probably kept me alive during that period it got really really bad and um, about halfway through making the album, I quit um, drinking and taking drugs altogether. Um, I was like, I, I became stone cold sober. Um, and so I, half the record was uh, with me drunk off my gourd. <laughs> and half of it was, was with me, like, finally coming to terms with sobriety and and having to process all the emotions that I'd pushed to the back of my mind through... Um, substance abuse um and it it made for a really interesting record and there are so many fans out there of ours like hardcore fans not like not like oh i know the subways um but i you know i don't know the later records kind of fans but our hardcore fans they'll say that some of our finer moments are on that album um but i i i look back on it with like two sides simply because I was in two different states during the process of recording but I'm like I hate that album so much because of the experience I had whilst making it and because of all the emotional connections I have with the songs um during probably the worst point in my entire life but at the same time I'm so proud that we made a record all by ourselves we had no producers no engineers no studio execs not even our manager um, was privy to the songs that we're making. We made all the decisions on the album. And, you know, every single sound that comes out of that speaker was something that I managed to, you know, managed to record myself um, using probably the crappiest Pro Tools equipment. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's it's so looked down upon in the recording community, the equipment that I used. I refuse to name <laughs> the equipment <laughs> I used. Um, uh, but one day when when when, I, when I, i'm a little more self-assured in my recording abilities but um yeah it's um it's a special record simply because of that and it was the first time apart from young for eternity it was the first time uh when the manager hand uh, handed us the vinyl um i cried because i was like this is this is something that we've truly birthed you know that we've 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 created out of our blood sweat and like just
1: real pure gumption.
2: Yeah. Real pride. Yeah. Um, so it like, I've got so many mixed feelings, but I, I get the feeling that in decades to come, I'll look back on that album and I'll think actually it's probably the the thing I'm proudest of most, but as it stands, like I look back on all or nothing and I just think that that's probably like the best, the best I've ever done in terms of songwriting and performance. But, But you know, I, I keep mentioning it, but I feel like it, it needs to be a caveat that the stuff we're recording at the moment is
3: quite easily the best stuff we've
2: ever done. <laughs> um, and, and for several reasons. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, it, like that fourth album, I can see why Josh loves it, because Josh is a real rock fan. Like he's a he, he loves dirty punk music. So he's like, no, i the, the grit, the squeals, the the hiss, that's me like mm. that that's that's what i want to hear in my music so um yeah it's a character characterful record
1: yeah Right, and then then we move on and the band takes a bit of a break between 2016 and 2020 and we've mentioned it a couple of times this degree you take so yeah you know, world away from uh you know gigs and festivals and everything you you rock up at cambridge and you do english lit so you know what did you take away from that because you know you, we, you mentioned about how um Stephen Street sort of planted the seed but what did you really gain out of um, going down that direction and spending some time to do that degree
2: yeah um, well uh, (laughs) I I, I definitely gained an enormous amount of (laughs) self-confidence because like the the one thing about like just I I think uh, the one thing about like taking a degree in the first place is uh, is the process strips away all the assumptions you've made throughout your life uh, and and kind of makes you realize that everything is just a huge question mark um but when you're like the, the oxbridge degree i don't know if you guys know about it uh, it's kind of this socratic dialectic process where you don't like you you do two two thousand word essays a week and then like alongside those essays you have to do like an hour and a half sitting in front of a professor um justifying the essay and also like um pointing to the larger reading you've done around the subject you've broached in the essay so an awful lot of it is pulling shit out of your ass (laughs) (laughs) in front of like the biggest experts in that area so you do you do get used to um being able to um you know which is why like a lot of the a lot of the politicians that have gone to oxbridge when you see them talking in the houses of parliament you're like that's that's like oxbridge 101 they are pulling this right out of their arsehole <laughs> and so it was great for that it was great because i got to stay uh in one place for three whole years which i hadn't done in about 12 13 years it was nice being able to form stable continuous relationships it was nice not being the person who's about to stand in front of 50,000 people and, and think he's the God (laughs) and do do the rock and roll solo and stage dive. And like, like, you know, I'm not the center of attention. I'm one of many very brilliant people here. Um, it's been a long journey to get here because, uh, after I talked to Stephen Street I didn't just kind of like read I decided to take a distance learning course uh, in English lit English language and lit um, as well as like well first I as I was doing the fourth album I took a college course um, access to higher education Um, and the whole idea of that is you take like a four subjects and then you know you, you, you use your grades to go straight into university and they were like oh so which university are you going to I was like I'm not going to university I'm going back to my 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 rock band because we're going to tour an album and uh I didn't want to put I didn't want to waste that really nice opportunity of just sort of you know um of you know having started getting back into writing essays and reading properly for extended periods so I took this distance learning course and whilst we were touring the fourth album um you know we'd be on a on a train journey from Moscow to St Petersburg overnight, Charlotte and Josh and all our crew would be getting hammered in the dining car, and I'd be there, surrounded by guitars, in you know, and and, and bunks with you know at midnight, using my phone as a light, reading over Shakespeare and trying to <laughs> cobble together an essay to send off to to my tutor, and um, and then you you know after we finished touring the fourth album, I turned around to Charlotte and Josh and I was like I. I don't know how you guys are going to take this and I'm really, really sorry, but I am, I'm going to take three years out and go to university. And what I didn't expect was them to go, fucking hell, brilliant. <laughs> 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 they were jagging for like three years, rest away from me, firstly. But also like Charlotte wanted to have a baby. Josh Josh has a daughter in, in France and he lives in France and he just wanted to live in France because, you know, he has a an apartment there and he has a girlfriend and he just wants to you know be with them so he got that opportunity um and i i had no idea where i wanted to go all i knew was that i wanted somewhere near london so i applied to four london universities uh and i had a fifth one um which i was going to use for like york or edinburgh or something but my wife was like it's not going to work is it really living in york or <laughs> Um so i thought oh, screw it I, I won't go to oxford because um david cameron went there and jacob reese mogg went there and i can't and boris johnson went there so um and, and you know wordsworth went to cambridge and uh, chris Marlowe went to cambridge i was like fuck it i'll try cambridge didn't expect even a letter back or anything and in they uh, invited me for an interview um and we actually had to cancel two shows in germany so that we could fly back for me to do the interview at cambridge um and then in January, I got the letter saying, yeah, i had been uh, accepted unconditionally into Cambridge. And my wife was like, well, that's where you're going then, isn't it? Because you can't really turn it down. So um, yeah, went there. Uh, it was quite different, you know, having grown up on a council estate and, and having been uh, in a rock band, I managed to keep it secret for about three months, which I was really proud of. Um, <laughs> and it turns out, Stupidly, I was wearing a festival t-shirt, um, I think it was like a, um, a German, I think it must have been like Rockham Ring or something like that, uh, that you get free after playing one of the festivals, and um, one of the Erasmus students from Germany went, "Ah, oh, Rockham Ring, I love Rockham Ring, ah, oh, she brought for a distiller, brilliant, Ah, oh, the Subways, I love the Subways, and I went, like, like, she totally didn't recognize me, and I went, oh that's funny, I hear this thing is a real dick. She was like, "No, he's nice." I was like, "It's me. I'm Billy in the Subways." And then that was it. Um, I kind of like, yeah, yeah. It was it was hilarious. It spread around college, and now like my the the guy the guy who got um, who uh, interviewed me uh, and gave me the offer and was my um, director of studies is now like <laughs> he sends an email every couple of months going, just got a new batch of students in. Of course, I bragged that. I was here. Um, <laughs> um, and like as a joke, I, you know, uh, I when I was there, I, I, I didn't just, you know, do the stuff like reading and essay writing, which is 90 percent of your time spent when you're awake. It's so just like full on. Um, but I was also, I, I booked the bands um, for uh, my college's um, May Ball. And uh, as a joke, I'd sort of broke Charlotte and Josh to say, yeah, we <laughs> should play. And they're like, yeah, we want to play. That'd be great. <laughs> so we ended up playing uh, um, my college's main Ball, which was hilarious. Just seeing all these nerds jumping up and down. <laughs>
0: um, and then and then very much back to the day job this year, it was, uh, you announced that the band, the band was going to return for the 15th anniversary of Young for Eternity, a tour alongside uh, Art Brute in support. Yes, and you, you, you started that tour that sadly had to be postponed due to lockdown. Uh, yeah. but it sounded like those first few shows were amazing, and they really went down a storm. So, first of all, what sort of drove that comeback, and and what was it like playing those first few gigs?
2: I think for us, it was like um, it was it was being away for so long, being away for the three years. Um, and it was also like, how are we going to transition being completely absent uh, into a brand new album? It kind of feels a bit jarring. So we mm. thought, crikey, it's 15 years since Young Fraternity. We owe so much to that album. Um, most of our fans are fans of us because of that record. Why don't we just go out on a tour? We'll do just a UK tour. Um And, you know, people seem to be really up for it, to the point where we ended up booking um, some uh, EU dates as well, um, which should be happening right now. (laughs) But they're not, and I'm screaming inside. Um, But, yeah, we we really wanted to sort of uh, pay homage to the most important album out of all of them, which is our first record, which started everything off for us. Um, So to have it cut short was so painful um, and really upsetting and i i dipped really badly i'm a depressive anyway but i dipped really badly and uh you know we kind of just said look this gives us a great opportunity to lock down and and crack on with this record so i've sent uh, a couple of microphones up to charlotte up in sheffield um and josh has got his own recording stuff so he's tracking drums and we're sending the file they're sending the files over um as high res as they can possibly manage, um, and I'm piecing it all together. So um, it's actually proving really interesting. We're writing songs that otherwise we never would have written, never in our a million years. So um, it's it's. I think it's going to shock a fair few people.
1: <laughs> yeah, y- yeah, You're clearly yeah very excited about this new one, Bill. So what can we you know what can Subways fans expect from this new track, new record?
2: O- over the last couple of years, like I have. I think I, like everyone else, has been so invested in Netflix. And, um, and also, like, I've really got heavily back into video games again. And because of those, I've been listening to um, the original soundtracks to the TV shows that were on Netflix and the soundtracks to um, some of the video games I've been playing. And their influences will appear on the album. Um, also, because of, like I said earlier, about being on Riot Diet show, um, the diverse range that's played on that show um, ranging from rock to electro pop and synth wave um, to just straight up pop and, and prog rock um, has kind of like really influenced me or just inspired me or just given me license to be a bit crazier on this album we've always gone into making albums with just like okay we we don't we don't love being in the studio you know we kind of cope with being in the studio because it's a means to being on stage and we you know we're we're a band that has since day one been geared towards making records just so we can be on the stage so that we can be in front of the crowd and whip them up make them go crazy so we can get circle pits going so that I can dive off speakers and jump off the drum kit so that we can all sort of experience this weird you know, every show we have a period where we're like, I, I swear I my, my spirit went out of my body, you know. Um, in the same way that when we're in the mosh pit, you kind of lose yourself in in the tumult of everything. Um so, uh, you know, when we'd go into the studio we'd be like, Okay, let's just get these songs down and make sure that they're representative of what we really want them to be and and leave the mixer to do that job and then let's just get back out on tour. And on this record we're like, we're doing this, right? We're doing this because this is this is what we have to do you know this i have to have the song this way we're being very purposeful we're being very um discreet um for the first time ever and the the results i mean we have three songs mixed already um and yeah it's uh, it's mad it's mad <laughs> We've got five, just about to finish the next five we've already started tracking the four after that so um we've st- we've still got another four or five after that and i'm still i'm still writing ideas now so wow um with the lockdown it's like total creative mode on <laughs>
1: yeah <I love laughs> it. it's so good it's nice when do you think we'll get to hear a uh, little taster of this then billy
2: um end of this year i think will be the first First that you'll get of this album, um, and I hope I'm not bigging it up. <laughs> people are like, is that all? Like, uh, uh, it, no, I I just want to remind people it is. Yeah, it is just music, but <laughs> it's, but it um,
0: does sound very exciting, Billy. Uh, yeah, the Subways oh, cool. are back. So, um before we let you go, uh, we really appreciate your time today. But we just want to finish up with uh, three more quick questions for the encore. Amazing. Um, so, first up, as a as a Cambridge graduate, uh, what uh, what books what books would you recommend people to read while in lockdown?
2: Um, well, now that I've graduated from Cambridge and I'm officially, like, a um, <laughs>
0: uh,
2: a pretentious cunt, um, <laughs> I'll try and curb that as much as possible. Uh, I'd say, like, The Life and Opinions of Tristan Shandy by Laurence Stern, I think, is uh, my favourite novel. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think um, uh, Sir Thomas Mallory's Le Morte to Arthur is... Uh, is a precious uh, piece of literature um, which was recovered uh, in the early 20th century uh, from some dude. Um, uh, the, the head of Winchester College had it locked away in a vault, and his family have had it for centuries. Um, the bastards. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, no, I'm going to be a pretentious, cunt. Um, the Canzoniere by Petrarch, which is a um, uh, 366 uh, poems collected throughout Petrarch's life uh, on like a journey on a kind of Dante-esque journey from um, the love of the corporeal or love incorporeal. So his his beloved Laura, eventually becoming like um, something of the infinite, and in, 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 translated into a love for God. I'm not myself religious, but I find that whole like um, moving moving through the life and and coming to terms with death really compelling. Mm. Um, so yeah, those three.
1: I'm so sorry. Three highbrow options to get started. Rich, you've read most of those, haven't you? Oh yeah, no not like the back of my hand, mate. Billy, back to the music. What's the best gig you've ever
2: played? Reading Festival 2008. We were at our peak. We just released All or Nothing. We were all at peak physical condition. We were all playing at our very best. Our fans were absolutely insane like we walked out 50 to seventy thousand people there i lost count of the number of circle pits i was just getting shivers down my back it was like an out-of-body experience and um, it was kind of like what it what it felt like in 2004 in glastonbury when when i remember walking on stage or i remember walking off stage but i don't remember the performance itself but i i do remember bits of the performance um of, of 2008 but by and large it's like I just remember oh my god oh my god oh my god for the whole gig it was like not a a missed note um you know not a missed beat uh tight as a fucking nut it was just yeah amazing
0: Great stuff. And uh, and yeah, Reading definitely seems to be a, a special special festival for you guys as well. Yeah. So, um, last one for us then, Billy. Looking back on your music, we've talked about all your albums, but we just want to nail it down to one particular song. Can you try and pick out one song that you would say you're most proud of from the subways?
2: Oh, well, um, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to go for Mary off of Young Fraternity because um, I wrote that song after I came home from work at the hotel and I saw my mum. Uh, My mum and dad were going through a really difficult time because, you know, my dad didn't learn to read or write till he was 23 when he met my mum. And he's he's had no qualifications. And at that time, he'd been made redundant. So I was the only one who was going out and working and mum was cleaning a block of offices. So I'd go and help her with that as well. But um, she just lost her job cleaning the uh, block of offices. Um, And she was sat in front of the telly and she was just looking so dejected. um, And I wanted to pull her out of it. So... uh, I went upstairs and I wrote a song for her. I came downstairs and performed it, and that song's Mary. Um, And to this day, I still can't believe I made it. For me, it's like the perfect confluence of all my most favourite influences in my life. So that would be Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, um, Oasis, um, and uh, Ramones, and Nirvana, and Blondie. So, yeah, Mary. Mary.
1: Brilliant! Excellent. Great choice. Yeah, I like that choice. Billy, thank you very much today, mate. It's been it's been so yeah, it's been really enjoyable going back through all these albums and gigs and highs and lows with you. It's been uh, it's been good fun. Hope My pleasure. Well. I've had such a great
2: time. Thanks so much for talking, guys.